And welcome, everybody, to a new season of Talking Space. We are back once again for our eighth season and the first episode, making this episode 801 for the week of Monday, February 1st, 2016. Oh, that is so weird to say, 2016. But we got a great crew joining us here tonight for this first episode of the new season. Joining us tonight is Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftlass. Welcome, Cassie. Great to be back. Excited for a new season. Oh, yes. Also joining us is Cad Robson. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Happy to have you with us. Now, Gene McCulka is out sick at the moment, and we wish him the best. And Mark Ratterman is working with his first robotics group. So he will be back later on in the year with some great stories about that. But in the meantime, we do have somebody else joining us today. It's the first time for him on Talking Space, but some of you may know him from Twitter as well. Please welcome John Wood, or some of you may know him as Woody. Welcome to Talking Space. Thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. Glad to have you with us. Glad to be here. All right. So we are going to get things started. And as upbeat as I started off the show, we do have to bring it down just a bit because today's date is February 1st, 2016, one of three dark days in NASA's history. That is January 27th, January 28th, and February 1st, where we remember the crews that we've lost of Apollo 1, Challenger, STS-51L, and Columbia, STS-107. Before we can look forward to what we have in the new year, we do have to stop and look back at these crews, as it has been 30 years now since Challenger, 49 since Apollo 1, and 13 years since Columbia. Unbelievable still, and still tragic and terrible to think about, even now. But they were absolutely amazing crews, and of course, you know, we always think of them this time of year during NASA's Week of Remembrance. But part of looking back is also going to be looking forward, but... Again, let's look back at some of the best moments of 2015. And while we're talking about the crews, one of those is the opening of the forever remembered exhibit at the Kennedy Space Center, which has mementos from all of the crew members of Columbia and Challenger, as well as pieces of the orbiters. And it's if you have not seen it, it's awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping, and you will not leave with a dry eye. I can almost guarantee that. And if you haven't seen it, it's phenomenal, but... If you want to get a taste of it, you can go back and listen to episode 708, where we talked all about the exhibit in depth. I don't know if you have either of you, any of you guys gotten to see that yet? Not yet. Yeah, me neither. Unfortunately, not. Wow. I had the amazing honor to see it twice now, and both times, I'll admit, I shed some tears. Just to see all the mementos and just, you know, you finally get to see them as people, not just 
pictures and the slow motion video that you see in the news portray. You actually get to see who they were and their personality. But then I was able to be alone for at least five minutes just with the pieces of Columbia and Challenger. And that was that was what did it for me. That was amazing. It was just awe-inspiring. And you see them not just as a tragedy, but for the amazing vehicles they were and all they did for humanity and space flight. And then continuing on to the recovery portion is just, again, uh, it's hard to explain. Episode 708 explains it even better. And if you get to see it in person, well, then that speaks for itself. You know, I haven't seen the exhibit, but I have a very precious memory. The first time I was in the VAB, and somebody pointed out where in the VAB they were storing the pieces. And we, a group of us stopped and had a moment of silence right there in the VAB. And it was incredibly powerful because we, just a minute earlier, we'd been the happiest we'd ever been. We were inside the VAB. And at the time, nobody got to go in there. Shuttle was still active. Then when somebody pointed that out, it was the most sobering moment and just really made you appreciate the difficulty and the danger and, you know, how frail it all can be. It's it's powerful. I can't even imagine what it's like actually getting to see these things. I'm really glad that they took them out of storage and put them on display like that. Yeah, I have to I have to echo what Cassie said. I mean, those of you, you know, who know me know that uh, Challenger happened on my first birthday and I've I've grown up every year with the reminder of what happened and and I credit them for and credit the crew for the inspiration of, of my love of space and and my career even as I'm going into uh, political science and studying space policy and I just I can't even imagine what it's going to be like when I get the chance to see it in such an intimate and, and reverent way because we talk about it all the time and, and we'll talk about in just a little bit you know space is hard failures happen and it's about how we respond to those failures and how we honor the memory of those who have given all so that we can go further and we can do it safer and better and, and with more focus. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity, hopefully this year, to uh, get done to KSC and see that. But I'm glad for the opportunity to pause and reflect on what those crews meant to everyone. And they really did mean a lot to everyone, especially seeing you know the reaction to 30 years since challenger but uh, like kind of going back to what you were saying cassie it's these this is directly underneath the space shuttle atlantis exhibit so you go from the awe-inspiringness of atlantis and all of its amazingness to then you know these vehicles that sacrificed themselves and unfortunately lost the crew as well in our exploration of space but it's just amazing to have that contrast of some of our dark times but how out of all of that there's still amazing things that happened and are happening in space and I think that leads us perfectly into our next thing, which we were each going to go around and give our favorite story of 2015, our favorite space-related story. And turns out we all had the exact same story, and that is <laughs> the successful flyby of Pluto by New Horizons. And not only the flyby, but the months and months of pictures that have been coming back and that are still yet to come. I mean, talk about amazing science and bang for your buck. We it, haven't even scratched the surface. Exactly. We only flew by it. But I'm. I knew everyone missed those jokes so much. 
You know, in fact, I was just looking at the latest news that came out on January 28th, um, the date we were just discussing and about Pluto's water ice and its blue atmosphere in the infrared. And it, it's amazing how we're just just starting to really process what's coming back. And, oh, I mean, I can't even imagine academics are going to be feasting on this data for years to come. <laughs> it's just a, a small moment in time is wowing us with science yeah i mean it is pretty amazing when you think about how little time it actually spent there and what we're getting in return and what's even more amazing is thinking about the technology it is launched back in 2003 but it was obviously built way before 2003 so you're talking 90s technology on this thing and look at yep. all this amazing science and we're getting back in a lot of cases, you're talking kind of low-end technology because this had to be a fairly low-cost mission. So it's really incredible when you think about what we're getting back for what was actually a pretty low investment considering we're talking about the far reaches of the solar system. Hey, but time and time again, it has been shown. You know, NASA gets its bang for, for its buck. For every dollar we spend on NASA, we're getting at least $8 back in the economy. And, and look at what we're doing with kind of a a very small budget built spacecraft. And you know, it's incredible. I mean, some of my favorite missions have been really low cost and New Horizons, not only do you get a huge return in science, but it's been a super popular mission. Like the mainstream media covers it. It's getting them a lot of attention in very positive ways that really only the Mars rovers have recently. Exactly, and New Horizons isn't done it's going to get another science directive. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's just, I mean, what great bang for the buck. It's it, absolutely incredible. And it's already given us more than, you know, it was so tense when it got out there and we weren't sure if it was going to turn on and everything was going to work. And, and just everything that's come back is so amazing. And how we knew nothing about Pluto. And now we're learning so much every week. Every week. Yeah. I mean, people, People know more now about Pluto than they do Mercury, you know, that our neighboring, you know, our neighbor planets, Venus, Mercury, Mars, you know, of course, Mars, we're studying like crazy. But it's just it, because, as you point out, the technology is just old as it is now for when it was developed. It's still light years above the technology we've used to explore other planets and moons. And yet we're learning so much about the outer solar system and even some of the inner solar system. Like water ice, it turns out, is a lot more common than we thought throughout the whole solar system between, you know, the Mars missions and Cassini and now New Horizons and all of this. We are learning so much about our solar system. It, it's phenomenal. It's turning geology on its head. Exactly. Really. Like all these things that we thought were absolutes and we thought we could tell exactly what we were looking at. And nope. Nope, turns out <laughs> it does not work that way. And we have to actually rethink just about everything. That's amazing, especially for, a, you know, this tiny little rock at the outer reaches, you know. It's, it's amazing that this planet that has caused so much controversy among humans and has, you know, been talked about so much. We really knew nothing about it until now, and now we know lots. It's well, it, just, it demonstrates the greatest thing about science that you go and you set out to answer one question and that one question turns into a thousand more. It's the best thing about science. It really is because we get answers to questions we didn't even know to ask. 
Ha, you were practically quoting my song right there. <laughs> well done. Very nice. And the other thing it does is that it brings more attention to planetary science. Because when people think yes. NASA, they just think people launching into space and the space station. And of course, we had the year in space, which is huge as well. And that's been great for NASA and will be great data to get back. But this brings a light onto planetary science, too. Yeah, and, and that's really incredible because, you know, Alan Stern, who's the director of New Horizons, he did actually, it's funny that we just referenced my song, but he actually did a bake sale for NASA to try and drum up support for Planetary. And it's so funny because New Horizons has done exactly what Alan Stern was trying to do. <laughs> it's made people interested in planetary science beyond Mars, because obviously the Mars rovers are incredibly popular. But Outside of Mars, though, I don't think the average person on the street really knows anything about Cassini, even though they look at the pictures all the time because they're used all over the place. People actually know New Horizons. They know the name of the mission. They know what's going on. And it's amazing to see them interested in it. Yeah, and of course, Pluto totally helped out by, you know, our first amazing picture of Pluto's heart. <laughs> yes. Oh, the heart picture, yes. <laughs> I mean, who couldn't love that little planet? <laughs> and yes, notice the term that's being used. I know people are going to call it out in the audience. So far, everyone has called there. it a planet. <laughs> and we're not that talking about planet. A planet. <laughs> that's right. It's a dwarf planet. Yes, and we are not talking about planet X on this we show. Designated. It wasn't downgraded. <laughs> yes, that is a dwarf planet. Whatever kind of planet it is, it has the name planet in it. And don't get started don't on planet X. That's, sun. that's a, a whole nother sun. show. <laughs> uh, but yes, we, we all love Pluto out here. Excited that we'll get to keep talking about it for at least another couple seasons. Yeah. <laughs> Probably as long as this show runs. And of course, we did mention that we, you know, manned is what a lot of people think of. And of course, 2015, there was a lot that went on in commercial manned flight and unmanned. We had the announcement of the four astronauts will be flying the first manned commercial flights. And then, of course, we had a whole bunch of resupply mission issues. There was Orb 3, which was technically 2014, but they flew OA-4 at the end of 2015. We had the CRS-7 failure, and then SpaceX came back, and they had their next mission, CRS-8, come pretty much go off without a hitch and with a little added bonus of landing the first stage back at Cape Canaveral. And I don't think we ever talked about that at the end of last year. The Because we had two companies that did major landings. We had both SpaceX and Blue Origin landing stages back. Yep. Really It exciting. was a good year for landings. Yeah. <laughs> there was a rough year there in launching and then a good year in landings at the end. There you go. <laughs> but I feel like we do have to just bring it up because... People were going crazy about the SpaceX landing, and it was absolutely phenomenal. I was one of the people cheering it along. As much as people think we're SpaceX haters here, we are not. We are not. We, as, as I love to say, I support anything that gets anyone or anything off this planet. And the better you can do it, the better it is for all of us. <laughs> exactly. There you go. But there was still that 
whole debacle of who did it first. Was it Blue Origin because there was only yep. a suborbital or was it SpaceX because, you know, they right. actually launched something. And then there was the whole Twitter little thing going back and forth between Jeff Bezos. And yeah, that, that was entertaining, to say the least. But at the same time, it goes back to what you just said of if it gets people off the planet eventually or things. Yeah, competition yep. is a great thing. I mean, competition. It's a motivator. With, exactly. I mean, <laughs> competition with the Soviet Union got us to the moon. <laughs> it's a wonderful, fantastic motivator. In fact, Com- I would almost say that you don't have, you don't really have the great, most of the great achievements in space, especially when it comes to crude flight, happen because of competition. They don't happen just because. Now, human beings, we are naturally explorers. That's part of what we are. That's part of who we are as a people. But when you have this competition and these massive egos, all of that just pushes stuff forward way, way, way more quickly. So having two internet billionaires who have been competitive their whole lives, who have been competing with each other in many, many ways, it's exactly what space needed was to get these mountainous egos competing with each other. It's perfect. It's like an injection of testosterone into actually going to space. (laughs) It really is. And competition has been fantastic for our commercial crew program, both commercial cargo resupply. It's been fantastic for that and for commercial crew. You know, competition is helping to make these programs become something that people want to see more of and that Congress wants to fund. Exactly. And we'll get into that very shortly, but, uh, yeah, you know, that competition is great. And I do just, you know, want to touch on some stuff from SpaceX here because so much has happened with SpaceX in the few months that we've been off the air in between seasons here. They had the successful landing back at Cape Canaveral. They then successfully launched a whole bunch of satellites. I forget how many it was. It was a double-digit number of satellites. And then they tried to land on a barge again. They got so close, and then it just wouldn't lock into place on the leg and tipped over. So... One success, one almost success, but technically a failure. But again, something they'll learn from considering how high those waves were. And that was impressive. In addition, they're working on getting their manned capsules up and ready. They had the propulsive hover test in November, and they just released a video of that a few weeks ago on January 21st, where they used the little Draco engines to do a hover test of their capsule. (laughs) <laughs> and in addition, they also tested the parachutes because those first missions will be landing back via parachute. And they did the parachute test with their Dragon capsule as well. And that was a success, again, within the last few weeks of us recording here in January. So, so much going on with them with their crude stuff, including apparently big announcement coming up later this year about SpaceX's mission to Mars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so Elon Musk in the last couple of days has announced that he has plans to travel to Mars by 2025, among various other plans that he touched on during this announcement, and said that this year at IAC, which our listeners will be familiar with, the International Astronautical Congress, which is taking place this year in Guadalajara in Mexico, which we will be attending as Talking Space, as we have made a tradition of doing, and he will be announcing new plans for uh, rocket and launch architecture to Mars. So we will definitely bring you that. It's in September this year. So keep an eye out or an ear out for that later in the year. But SpaceX is continuing to do exciting things as, as they have done. 
You know, we should mention while we're talking about SpaceX's Mars plans, what's really astounding about this is they are talking about a whole new system, a whole new launch system for this. And that's what they're going to reveal at IAC is the plans for that launch system. And Elon Musk said in his Reddit AMA, or Ask Me Anything, that it will be completely new architecture. And he said, good thing we didn't do it sooner, as we have learned a huge amount from Falcon and Dragon. So that just builds on what we were saying about they have to keep learning from all of these experiences. So the experience is trying to land things through different methods and trying to make all these advanced things happen. They're taking all of that and not just applying it to making that landing system better, but they're going to apply that to everything they build in the future. And that's just such a great thing, especially when people actually admit, well, we've learned a lot from mistakes we've made along the way, and that's going to make us have way better systems, because that's often how things work. Exactly. And that's the point of as much as it seems that way, every time there's a failure or some kind of malfunction, we learn, we were reminded that space is difficult. It is not easy to get people and cargo and anything, for that matter, off this planet and into orbit or beyond. And again, uh, it takes a lot for someone, especially at a big company like this, to realize how much they need to learn. Yeah, it, it does. And as, again, we're talking about somebody with a massive ego and massive plans. But I, I just think the only way that you can find true success is if you have the humility to learn from your mistakes. And I honestly think that Musk has shown that as much as he's not a humble person. He, he has learned, you know, he's very good at learning from what he does. That's why he has found success in multiple industries, all of which are rather difficult. So I have a lot of faith in SpaceX. Oh, totally. Uh, I, again, as much as it doesn't seem like it on this show, we're more against the SpaceX, you know, obsessives as opposed to SpaceX itself. And, <laughs> and I will even say that. one thing that's, that's really fantastic, and, and I will credit Scott Maxwell, who you pro all probably know as at Mars River Driver on Twitter for bringing this up, is that when a company or a person like Elon Musk and SpaceX say, we're going to make the trip to Mars, you can put some faith in that because they're taking steps to build on that. We can see where they have architecture or will build yes. architecture and the ability, unlike we have discussed extensively <laughs> on the show as well, Mars One. <laughs> and, and he really wrote a great post on G Plus about this. And it was like, yeah, you're not even alone. Like SpaceX will talk about their plans. They'll actually put plans out there. They will respond, as Scott said, to criticism of the plan. And they, they really want it to work. And it will be a much more a process that you can see success with, as opposed to one that uh, success is very hard to envision. Yeah, well, you don't get to Mars in one swoop. You get there with baby steps. And SpaceX has been taking baby steps for a very long time. And they definitely, they've sunk a lot into doing that. So, yeah. I mean, he wants to, he doesn't want to do something that's just a publicity stunt. He wants to make a company that is going to be a commercial interest in all of the future of spaceflight. That's what he wants. It's not just these things. It's, he wants overall a healthy company that can pull this off as a commercial venture. And that's what you need. That's the kind of thinking that you need to do this. Exactly. He's got the smarts for it. And I think that they will succeed and it's just a matter of when they'll succeed and i think it does help now that uh 
They are, I believe, being included in part of the new NASA budget, which I believe is a perfect and convenient transition into our next topic, which is going into this new year, NASA apparently is going to have more money than we thought, thankfully. (laughs) This is the first time we've ever gotten to say this. It's such a cool thing to get to say. (laughs) Yes, please keep putting that on repeat over and over again. You'll never hear it again. I mean, it's really, really astounding. Uh, what really blows my mind more than anything, planetary science. They gave more money to planetary science than was asked for. That is absolutely incredible. That that really does not happen. I mean, I expected SLS to get fully supported because Congress always tries to throw more money at that. But I'm astounded at planetary science, which is usually a division that gets totally screwed in these things and they and they got more than was asked for that's amazing i think correct me if i'm wrong cat i know you probably went through this line by line i think earth sciences was the only thing that was cut as a line item right yes that's correct earth sciences is the only thing that uh received less funding and that receiving less funding doesn't tell the whole story because there are some sharing of the earth sciences between nasa and noaa and uh, NASA has been taking over some of the spaceflight operations of satellites that NOAA uses, but there are interagency, and the word has completely left my brain, within Congress and within lawmakers, of some dealings that have to do with some of like who gets what, who should manage what, you know, what NOAA wants, what NASA wants. So I think that even though there was less of a of a budget and line item cut for for Earth science, doesn't mean that Earth science isn't still happening. And that NASA isn't still using money um, that it can take from other places in the budget for that. And you have to say, also, if we're talking about Congress, one of the reasons that you did not see an emphasis on Earth science in the planetary science and the general sciences is because a large portion of Earth science is climate change science. And and I think we're all aware with um, the political party that controls the House and, and the Senate right now is not always a fan of climate science. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, that that tends to be the case in the government, which is a shame, but that's a whole nother story on its own. But just to give you a perspective here, let me throw out some numbers. So planetary is getting one point six three one billion dollars. So that's a two hundred seventy million dollar increase from what was originally requested. And keep in mind that normally gets the heck cut out of it. Yep. So there's that, and just in like general. every year. Exactly. <laughs> well, even Earth yeah. Science got, they got a little bit more money. They didn't get as much as they requested, but they did actually get more money over 2015 appropriations. So yes, even though we are discussing a cut in the request, they are still getting $200 million about more, $150 million. Math is not my always strong suit, but they're getting more money in Earth Science still. So it's... It's pretty. Yeah, that's that's the thing. And we should probably point this out is what's difficult in discussing NASA's budget is when we say things were cut, there's two different meanings to that. There's the difference between this year's budget and last year's budget. And then there's also the difference between the NASA request and what was in the final budget. So in the case of Earth Sciences, they got less than was requested, but not less than last year. Right. And again, just to give the big picture to compare it to last year, they have a budget of nearly $19.3 billion, which is $750 million more than they were originally expecting and $1.2 billion more than last year. And when it comes to science and NASA always does things on a budget, 
I mean, that money is significant. Not only did the planetary science get a huge boost, also commercial crew was fully funded. And those are interesting because there was a huge push by people contacting and writing and petitioning their congressional representatives for planetary science. And on the other hand, so that was the citizen-led initiative, several organizations, including the Planetary Society, really pushed for that. But And NASA, then you have the Russia factor, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay, but NASA really, like, Charlie Bolden was very, very vocal about this, really campaigned and said that if you want our crewed program to succeed, if you want to see humans traveling beyond low Earth orbit, you must fund commercial crew because commercial crew is what makes it possible for NASA to focus on the next step. Being able to hand off low Earth orbit to commercial companies is what frees up NASA to work on the journey to Mars and the next great step in humanity's exploration. And it also keeps us from having to keep paying Russia for Soyuz seats. Yes. That's, that's, that's a huge thing to that's a huge thing to Congress. What's it up to 78, 79 million dollars a seat somewhere around there? Something like that. Yeah. So I think it's 79 now. And the thing is, you know, it breaks their monopoly. And the last thing that I, that's one thing that is pretty easy to explain to Congress. We want to stop giving Russia money for our to fly our astronauts is probably the easiest way to get money out of Congress. Yeah. <laughs> Congress, your congressional representatives like NASA, because we can make the argument that NASA is creating American jobs or making American products for the American people on American soil. Congress has been working to get the dependence off the RD-180 engine. Exactly because it's Russia. We don't want things to happen in Russia. We want space to happen at home. We want space to happen in the United States. Exactly. And is it bad, by the way, that I just pictured Vladimir Putin riding shirtless on a Soyuz? <laughs> yes. Are we sure that hasn't happened yet? If not, someone please Photoshop that. Tweet it at Talking Space. Please, please, please. We want to see lots of submissions. <laughs> we will feature them on our website even. Oh, boy. Sorry. I, that, I just had to mention that coming to my head. But yes, it'll be nice to get off of that Russian monopoly, like you said, and relying solely on them and being able to send people on American rockets to the space station again within a year or so. Exactly. And you know what? People talk about jobs going overseas and all this stuff outside of just the space world. But so... Investment in making American engines, making American vehicles, American launchers, all of these things, it's so good for us because these are jobs that can't just be shipped off. These are even the jobs that are just factory work that are considered like unskilled labor. Th those jobs exist within space. And so it's just a win-win-win when Congress gives more money to NASA for these things, because that money goes trickling down. <laughs> this is where trickle down actually works. It goes trickling down into companies. And some of these are really small businesses. Some of them are big businesses that employ lots of people. The money goes right into our economy. It's fantastic. It does. And as I mentioned before, the current numbers for every dollar spent in the budget on NASA, it returns $8 to our economy. And that's the conservative estimate. Exactly. So it's really it, quite amazing how much of an impact this budget has on our nation as a whole, not just because of space itself and because of the rewards we get scientifically, 
but because we get immediate economic rewards. And then, of course, you know, those things will become spinoffs and they'll make new companies and more money and employ more people. So it's just it's a win all around. Exactly. And it'll keep inspiring like New Horizons did. And we just celebrated 25 years of Hubble last year. So like Hubble did and hopefully like James Webb will, which I should add that actually got its full funding request as well of $620 million, which will hopefully keep it on track for its current scheduled launch of 2018. And that is an important point about this budget. The fact that NASA was funded beyond its request, projects are going to get to stay on time and hopefully on budget. And that's a big, I think, one of the reasons that we saw this willingness to actually fund NASA and to fund it well is this recognition that if we want to remain the leader in space, that we kind of have to put our money where our mouth is because we don't get to stay the leader if we're not willing to fund these missions and these directives and these programs. Especially not in the crowded world that we have now. I mean, you know, back in the 60s, you had two countries trying to do this stuff. And now there's a lot of them. And while we don't hear as much, a lot of countries are doing small missions currently, they are building programs. And so it's actually more important now than ever because there's way more competition building up. Absolutely. And one thing that I think that for me that's very interesting about the budget is the asteroid redirect mission, which was ignored by the Senate. And in the House, when you're looking to reconcile the, the funding bills between the Senate and the House, each chamber has a committee that looks at the bill and makes it recommendations. And then an entire bill or the omnibus spending bill is passed. So the Senate ignored the asteroid redirect mission, but the House actually said it needs to be re-envisioned in essentials, that if we're going to do this asteroid redirect mission, which was championed by Obama, and as a reminder for anyone who hasn't heard about it in a while, it says that we're going to go out, we're going to capture an asteroid, and we're going to bring it into lunar orbit so that we can send astronauts there and do to practice sampling it, landing on an asteroid. So I think that will be something interesting to watch in the years to come to see what happens with asteroid redirect. Is it going to still happen, or will it be something that kind of falls to the side as we go towards Mars. Especially considering by this time next year, we're going to have somebody new in charge of such things. We're not going to have Obama pushing for it. And we'll see what the next president focuses on, because obviously that's going to need people to keep pushing. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Oh, yeah, exactly. And again, it's interesting seeing the projects that have survived through some of the changes. I mean, even shuttle and sls and orion and constellation there was that whole deal yep yeah, this... SLS has a proposed mission now with this new bill as well it yes. strongly suggests that europa will be launched by sls so that's really important with orion that right now orion has no mission beyond its test flights no actual funded on the budget mission that doesn't mean that orion won't be the spacecraft that carries us to Mars, but there is no mission on the book. So having a mission on the books or having a suggestion of the mission for uh, the mission to Europa to be SLS, that's good because those are plans and you can start to build through those plans. And once you're actually going towards a concrete plan or concrete destination, when it comes to the NASA budget, it's a lot easier to continue that funding. It's very true. Oh yeah, exactly. Very, very true. Not to mention an exciting mission of its own. <laughs> oh yeah. Definitely. Again, 
we have mentioned a lot of things not to mention. <laughs> yeah, there, there's just so much excitement going on. And again, it'll be great to see these projects now progressing with their funding, like, you know, SLS. And again, we mentioned James Webb and they had an interesting time as well, because since we recorded, there was a major snowstorm that came through the East Coast. And I think James Webb, their crew was not that impacted by it, right? Well, they were personally impacted, but the progress of the James Webb was not, and that's what's important. I believe that the people who were working on installing the mirror had to just stay on campus for a while. I think they were there for two or three days that they had to just live there. Yeah, the dedication of your nation's space employees. Yes, which is not the first time that people have slept at Goddard to run a mission either, because... Years ago, some of you might remember the Solar Dynamics Observatory mission. Everybody involved in the launch of that had to stay on campus for a few days, also because of a major snowstorm. And so hopefully they uh, gave the James Webb crew some tips <laughs> on surviving life full-time at Goddard instead of just being there during the day. And I noticed there were a lot of really funny tweets of signs like, you know, shh, people sleeping, which you normally don't see at Goddard. So... It was pretty cool. It looked like they made the most of it and they got their job done. And that is what really matters. Exactly. Because that's a mission that's been delayed as is. And there's been some criticism about it. But hey, there you've got a dedicated crew working on it. And again, that should now hopefully be on track for 2018. And that'll be exciting. And can't wait. Oh, yeah. And apparently the blizzard didn't just impact James Webb because there was another very amazing event that happened, and I should add that on today's recording date, February 1st, are two very important birthdays. In case you're unaware, it is Steve Arnold, professional meteorite hunter, as well as Jeff Notkin, professional meteorite hunter. Both of them share the same birthday. So, again, happy birthday to both of them. And Happy birthday, guys. And Jeff just recently hosted a meteorite hunting boot camp out in Tucson, Arizona, and I believe... Cassie and Woody, both of you were there, right? Inspiring jealousy from everyone left at home. Exactly. <laughs> we were there. We were there. It was, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, anytime you get to do something with Jeff Notkin, you know you're going to have a good time. That's just a guarantee. But actually getting, you know, it's been a dream of ours since the moment that we first became aware of those two men, let alone met them that we wanted to learn how to meteorite hunt. And so Woody actually surprised me for my birthday with this trip. I didn't even know it was happening because it wasn't public information yet. It was only had only gone out to people who were on Aerolite's mailing list, I think, at the time. So nobody even knew about it. And he tells me, we're going meteorite hunting. Trust me, she was very excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah dream come true truly i was just as excited as when i got the news that i got i was going to my first shuttle launch so it was set up as a boot camp out at this incredible luxury dude ranch just outside tucson the site is actually there have been meteorites found there, so it is an actual strewn field. But to make sure that we got the real experience, some of the staff over at Aerolite went out and they buried iron meteorites and tossed, basically, <laughs> some stony meteorites into two areas. 
Jeff Notkin was the teacher for the metal detecting portion. And Suzanne Morrison, who used to work with Jeff, but is now off on her own. She's basically, Jeff credits her for teaching him to hunt some areas, uh, including Holbrook, Arizona. And she's incredible. She's one of the best at sighting meteorites on the ground. And she was our teacher for sighting. So the day was broken up into, they split everybody into two groups. Our group was with Jeff in the morning and Suzanne in the afternoon for, I think it was about four hours each session. About four hours each session, yep. So yeah, basically you're talking about an entire day of actual hunting. Plus we got some briefings on what to expect and what to look for. And then on the second night, just straight up hilarious stories from the field. Now, Jeff and Suzanne have actually teamed up, and I think their goal in this is to actually, they really want people to learn how to hunt and go out there and hunt for meteorites. When we first signed up for this, I was a little, I wouldn't say skeptical. I knew we'd have a good time, but the idea of them salting the grounds with meteorites I just thought we would be finding them left and right and there would be no real challenge to it. And I've always wanted to hunt a real strewn field. And they did their very best to actually make it very realistic. There were people who in one session or another found nothing. I mean, it It was so hard. They actually made it very difficult. The (laughs) strewn field, you know, it wasn't your typical seven mile long strewn field, but it was about a mile and a half long. And with just 15 people or so on each side, there was plenty of ground to, you know, hunt. And I think the buried meteorite, the the morning session we went to, I think they planted 100 buried meteorites and they put 100 on the surface for the surface session. And I think they found 40 of the buried ones. So there are 60 out there, people. (laughs) And uh, I think in the... Like I needed um, another reason to go to Tucson. (laughs) Yeah. And on the the surface, I think we found maybe another 40 or 50 at most. So about half of the meteorites they planted on each side are still there and maybe forever. It was uh, really interesting how people who didn't know anything about meteorite hunting or meteorites themselves to people who were a lot more experienced and who actually own meteorites. By the end of the camp, I think everyone had a really good understanding and, you know, they became way more proficient in in distinguishing igneous rock from meteoric rocks. When you're out there with a magnet stick, it seemed like every other rock stuck to your magnet. You can't believe how much iron. Yeah. It turns out Arizona is entirely magnetic. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, how many meteorites and how many meteor wrongs did you guys find? I would say way more meteor wrongs. I found probably hundreds of meteor wrongs. I found one iron and one stony. Woody fared quite a bit better than I did, though. <laughs> in fact, I actually found the only in situ meteorite in the entire hunt. So it's an unclassified meteorite and probably never will be classified. 
but it was not planted by Aerolite. So. Yeah, Aerolite did not recognize it at all. The people who actually put out the meteorites. Oh, and we should point out that Jeff and Suzanne had no idea where any of these were placed. So that they were out there blind, just like it was a regular strewn field. They were right there with us. And so they couldn't guide us to them or anything like that, other than if they happened to find them first. Woody, so, I'm so excited. I did not realize that you found, I don't know how I missed this because I, was watching both of your Twitters like it was my second job. <laughs> I was so fascinated. But I didn't realize that you found an in situ meteor. I'm please tell yep. us more. I'm so excited. Well, it was very exciting. You know, I picked it up and uh, we had been finding bullets. And so I thought maybe it was a little smashed bullet. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of looks like one. It's very rounded on one end. So it, it turned like out one. it's a shield. It's a little oriented button that fell out. And, you know, as we said earlier, this was a known strewn field. People have found meteorites in situ. So and they had told us that the possibility of us finding meteorites in situ was slim, but there was a chance. The people at the ranch were kind enough to sign off and let us keep anything that was found. And uh, we did a service to them as well by picking up all the metal and fragments of beer tabs and hundreds Lots of, of barbed wire, of horseshoes and barbed wire and uh, all kinds of things that could be dangerous to the cattle on the ranch because it is actually a working ranch and not just a dude ranch. And uh, I gained a great respect for meteorite hunting in general. It's very difficult. And uh, my takeaway was. If you paid for meteorites, like people complain about how expensive meteorites can be, but if you actually paid meteorite hunters for their labor, they would cost hundreds more, thousands more, hundreds of thousands more. <laughs> it's so much work to find one little piece. <laughs> it's incredible. So I know that your that your trip didn't end there and we're going to hear more about the rest of the stuff, but just from that experience, what was like the best moment for each of you? Finding the first one. <laughs> there's just no, there, there's, it, it's like seeing your first launch or there's something about that moment. I mean, you find all these meteor wrongs and I got so excited. I even tweeted a picture of one that I thought was a meteorite and then I found out it wasn't. And it's so demoralizing. And right when I found my first, somebody else in the group had found hers. And we were talking about how we were just about to get so frustrated and just think, why would anybody want to do this? And then we found our first. And it was such an incredible feeling. It was like, I want to do this all the time now. Yeah. <laughs> like instantly you go from like kind of bored and frustrated to elated. <laughs> You're hooked and you don't want to leave the strewn field ever. So was that your, was your finding your first also the best moment for you, Woody? Or do you have another one? No, I, I would say my best, finest moment was uh, finding the largest on-surface meteorite that they had planted. It was a 110-gram Northwest Africa unclassified meteorite. The surface rocks that they had planted were actually very deceptive. They weren't classically fusion-crusted, dark, standout rocks. In fact, many of them had what they call caliche all over them. It's a sort of a a uh, gray, whitish clay that dries. And so it was, I mean, they really made it very difficult. <laughs> and, you know, that's another thing is people in the audience might have some meteorites and be very familiar with what they look like when they're cleaned and polished or even sliced. And 
they look nothing like that in the field. <laughs> we'll, have they to, like, we'll have to post some pictures from your adventure when we put this episode definitely. up. Definitely. Most, most definitely. And personally, I'm really looking forward to getting to see them in person at the end of this week. I, I thought I knew what a meteorite looked like. And, and we actually, we took from our lessons, we went up to Holbrook, Arizona and searched in a real strewn field up there. In fact, that very site was on Meteorite Men once. And... Going out there in like in an actual strewn field that nobody has salted and that has been hunted and hunted and hunted and hunted by everybody was amazing because it runs along a railroad track. And so you've got all these rocks that they bring in for the railroad and lots of them have tons of iron in them. And Holbrook is a stony meteorite. So actually one of the things we had to look for was we didn't want something to be too magnetic because the things that were super magnetic that actually flew over and clicked right onto your magnet, those were from the train. <laughs> those were rocks that had been brought in for the train tracks. The actual Holbrook meteorite is magnetic, but it's not very magnetic. So it's weird like you, because you think of iron meteorites primarily and you think of the distinctive click when they come flying onto your magnet. And that's what all the regular rocks were doing up there. And the meteorites would not do that. So it's really, and we were even told as part of the advice to look for things that look like bunny poop, but to stay away from the bunny poop because there's tons of bunnies up there. So and tons of bunny poop. It's funny because then you start seeing all this bunny poop and you're like, wait, I'm supposed to look for something that looks like this? That doesn't seem very meteoritic. <laughs> so it's very confusing. Any luck up in Holbrook then or... Mm, lots of meteor wrongs. Yeah, yeah, really, really good meteor wrongs. Uh, yeah. We looked at a Some few. Some so good we took them home yep. and looked at them under a loop. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the minute we detected quartz or, you know, all these telltale terrestrial rock meteor wrong, no. And that's actually what fascinated me the most for myself was I loved the hunting. It's very, very exciting. But I fell in love with classification. I already started to like it. But I actually found myself constantly going over to look at other people's finds during boot camp. And I found a lot of joy in just figuring out if something was a meteorite or not. It's really complicated. It's a lot more complicated than you'd think. We have a large meteorite collection. I've looked at so many different meteorites. And like I said, nothing out in the fields looked anything like them. So you have to look for a lot of signs. And almost everything you're looking for is going to disqualify it. So it's very frustrating and it's actually, I almost wonder if I tossed some meteorites because I was being so picky. <laughs> I actually brought home a meteor wrong that I am convinced is a meteorite. I couldn't get a definite no, but they were pretty much, nope, that's not. They deal with people like this at trade shows all the time, the folks at Aerolite and, and other meteoritic people, you know, they have people come up to them all the time to identify a stone and... Once you start to know your stuff, you, you can pretty much tell right off the bat. There are so many telltale little giveaways that just tell you no or yes, let's look at this further. But you can see how frustrated people can get. And I am guilty of the same now because I cannot let go of this rock. And, and I even want to maybe get it looked at because I'm so convinced it's a meteorite. It just <laughs> And it's been looked at by several experts already. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite something. The, the uh, study of meteoritics is so young. And what fascinates me about meteorites is very much like astronomers, uh, novice and, and amateur astronomers. 
it's one of the fields where you can make a major contribution without really having a degree. You can make an impact. You can sort of put your name in the... Jeff Nakin has a degree in art. He has a BFA and he's a scientist. Can't do that in too many fields. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's so neat to be part of something where you feel like you could maybe contribute one day. I, I would love to uh, discover a meteorite and have it classified and, and be the, the one who discovered the strewn field. And, and, you know, I will always be on the lookout for uh, fireballs and what have you. How did this... Cassie talked a little bit about how your meteorite boot camp experience changed the way that she looked at meteorites. Did it change the way that you looked at it beyond what you've just said? Oh, most definitely. I mean, for one, like I, you know, we discussed earlier, I just have such a huge, deep respect now for meteorite hunters. It's not a real profitable thing. It's also pretty amazing that you could maybe discover something that leads to who knows what. They're still looking at that uh, meteorite in Antarctica, AH84001. It was the first meteorite discovered in the Allen Hills part of Antarctica. We all know it well because Clinton, I think in 1996, had made the announcement that we may have found life on Mars. And it was based on that meteorite that they're still looking at at Johnson Space Center in Houston. We learn so much from these rocks, and I can look at mine through a loop for hours and discover all kinds of new things, and it's it's inspired me to read more and, and maybe even go back to school and study meteoritics. It's, uh, yeah, we're actually both considering going back to school for meteoritics. That's how much of an impact they've had on us. It, it, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> I'd like to say, too, that Aerolite is going to be hosting more of these boot camps. I know their next one they've already announced is May 1st. And last we checked, which was a few days ago, there were still spaces available, people. And I, I can't recommend it highly enough. There were uh, some people accompanying spouses where one or the other weren't, you know, maybe so interested. And by the end, they were as hooked as anyone else <laughs> at the camp. Uh, it was a really, really just incredible experience for everyone involved, and there will be more of them. So I strongly urge anyone who has even the remotest interest to uh, contact Aerolite Meteorites, maybe sign up for one of these boot camps. Exactly. And we'll put all the information for that in the show notes as well. So definitely check that out. And again, Jeff Notkin and Aerolite, the people at Aerolite are an amazing group. Suzanne Morrison, another amazing person. And I am just so jealous of you guys. And it sounds like you had an amazing time. It really was. They're the best hosts. And we should probably give a shout out to White Stallion Ranch, who hosted all of this and let us tromp all over their cattle pasture <laughs> with our metal detectors and They really showed us a great time and made us feel welcome out there. And that's always special. It was great, too, because not only did we have the meteorite hunting, but Saturday night, you know, we were outside the city of Tucson. So the skies were nice and dark. And someone brought out an 11 inch telescope. And Woody and I brought our binoculars and everybody was doing some stargazing So it was just a great way to get some people who love space together and doing something really cool and different. This was the first time that there has ever been anything like this. We're the first class of certified meteorite hunters to learn from a class. So this is a really new thing. And 
that's a pretty amazing thing to be part of. And everybody was so excited by the end of the day. And, you know, we just wanted to keep going. So we went, we looked up at the sky, we hung out and made friends as you do with these things. And of course, saw lots of old friends. It's amazing, like the bonding experience. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have been to NASA socials and things and know about how you can bond during this. But this was less than 40 people out in the desert together. You know, (laughs) it was an incredibly bonding experience. And I think everyone was changed a bit by it. People came from all, like what he said, across the spectrum. Some people were just, you know, have some meteorites or people came for very different reasons. And I think people left with a lot of the same experience and same changes because um, it's a very humbling experience. And it's we packed a lot into a weekend as well. <laughs> Well, after listening to you, I'm, I'm convinced not only are you now certified meteorite hunters, but you're uh, some pretty amazing meteorite hunting ambassadors. <laughs> yeah, <for laughs> we sure. try to be. You know, uh, what he's been bringing, we got a, a new meteorite, not, not found, <laughs> but bought out there, that is a piece of the moon. And Woody has been bringing his meteorites into work and showing them to all kinds of people and really spreading the word. And there there was a guy the other day who had never seen a meteorite before, didn't even know, didn't know anything about them, didn't realize rocks really fell from the sky and landed on the ground. And by the next day, he was asking Woody about details about individual meteorites that have been found because he'd been on Google all night searching for them. All night. <laughs> So, I mean, you really never know what's going to spark. We, we say this all the time on the show, but you never know what's going to spark people with outreach. You never know when a person you show a meteorite to is going to end up becoming an enthusiast. So, you know, if you're somebody who's interested in this, we highly, highly recommend going to this boot camp, not just for yourself, but because you can bring the experience home and share it. Of course, you can share it through social media and all those kinds of things. But you can also, when you show people like, hey, this is the meteorite I found, it gives people this personal connection to space. And that's really important. There's something about being able to touch something that's been in space, that tactile connection that that is truly special to meteorites. I was going to say, because whenever I do that to astronauts, they always file restraining orders. <laughs> and it'd be a little creepy to hold one in your hand and stare at it for hours huh (laughs) yeah i totally yeah now you must put it that way but i do have to add i kind of want to end it on that note but i will say and that's even the beauty of talking space is that we talk about so many different topics some of you may tune in for the manned space flight some may tune in for the unmanned. Some may tune in because of, you know, the Jeff Notkins and those kind of interviews. But not everybody who listens to Talking Space knows that much about meteorites or even probably knew as much as they did tonight. There are some people that are as passionate and would love to do this just because they're that into meteorite men or into meteorites. And there are others that may not know that much about meteorites and now want to go out and explore and Google and stuff like that, and then even consider going on this event to learn more. So hopefully everybody out there gets a little inspired to do this and a little, you know, taste of the different stuff that's out there and the things that come from space. 
Outreach is exponential. If you can get one person interested, they might get two and the next person might get another two. And it's amazing. Like, I love our show for that, that we try to expose people to the breadth of space. I'm sure everybody gets into space because they're interested in one specific thing. For me, it was space elevators. I was fascinated with space elevators. That's what got me into space. Now, there weren't podcasts when I was four years old and getting interested in space elevators. But if there had been a show like this, if there had been anything like this at the time, I, I think it would have been an incredible thing to learn about all these different aspects. And I think that's a good point, Cassie. You know, we love hearing from you. We love hearing from our listeners. If there's a topic you've never heard us bring up, send us an email. We might have never even thought about it and would love to maybe be able to discuss some listener ideas on air. So whatever your space elevator is, send it to us and let us know about it. Exactly. And hopefully we can touch on a whole bunch of new topics as we go into the eighth season of Talking Space. And it may be a new season, but the ways to get in touch with us have not changed Mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com is our email. You can do it messages by text or voice recordings as well. You can always tweet us at Talking Space. We have our Facebook page as well as Google+. So feel free to reach out to us on any of those mediums and let us know if there's any topic that you want to hear about in this eighth season of Talking Space because we have covered quite a lot. We've got a whole bunch of great stuff planned for the year, some interviews, some special shows already, and it's just the very beginning but before I get all sappy, let me thank everybody who joined us here for episode one of this new season. Thank you for joining us, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. Thank you very much, Sawyer. It's really, truly great to be back. It is. I missed this a lot. Thank you for joining us as well, Kat Robinson. It has been truly my pleasure. It's always fantastic to get together with you, gang, and I am really looking forward to what season eight is going to bring. Me too. And thank you as well to our newcomer to the show, John Woody Wood. <laughs> thank you. I've been really enjoying the show and uh, I'm so glad you guys asked me to come on. Well, we were certainly glad to have you on. And uh, again, so much great stuff coming up in the year 2016 in the eighth season of Talking Space. And we hope you'll stay along for the ride. But until our next episode, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.